Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Bling Talks. Uh, together, I'm on the, with my co-host, Anthony Haddad, and we're on with Daniel Scott, founder and brand architect of Looks Licensing Alliance. Um, thank you so much, Dan, for being in the show. Appreciate it a lot. It's our honor. Oh, please. It's, it's, it's my honor. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be here, and I'm, I'm anxious to, uh, to hear what you guys uh, have questions surrounding and, uh, and how I might be able to, uh, to assist. Amazing, amazing. Again, appreciate it. And you've been in the space of, um, or you've been running this uh, business that you have, Lyft Licensing, for like over a decade now, I believe. So can you tell us um, a little bit about your like, background? Where are, you getting, where are you getting like this this drive and enthusiasm that you have? Certainly. Um, yeah, it's actually, uh, I mean, you did your homework. It's, it's, it's nearing a, a decade, soon to be past a decade. Uh, but uh, prior to this, my, my very first job, I was quite fortunate, actually. My very first position was at QVC pre-launch. And I have to be utterly transparent. The reason why I got in for the interview, not the reason I got the job or stayed there eight years, but the reason I got the interview was Joe Siegel, who founded the Franklin Mint and also QVC, happened to be my father's best friend in Delancey Street in Philadelphia. So when my parents moved uh, back to Italy, um, it, I kind of used it as my trump card to at least get in the door, and it worked. Uh, and luckily, um, even though I didn't have much interface with Joe Siegel, uh, except for some executive meetings and whatnot, the, uh, uh, my father's name never came up again, and nobody really knew. It was my little secret, I guess, up until now. Uh, but uh, that was eight years, and that was quite an experience because it, it, it provided me with how to truly think on your feet. I mean, QVC is live television, even though it has a black spot against it, you know, because of its production values, let's say, or maybe some of the items that they sell. Uh, the reality is it's still a multi-billion dollar success now. Um, but I learned something else there at QVC right before I went on to um, another position you'll be interested in. And that was the comparison of Diamonds and Diamondique. Right. Dominique at the time was an um, accelerated CZ that it had more elements that were more like a Moissanite, right? And presented themselves much better on camera and in natural light. So QVC uh, purchased the corporation and they never went on to sell actual diamonds or, uh, I should say, natural diamonds within that space because they made so much with, with Dominique. But there were missteps that occurred which actually work really well into transition of what I'm about to tell you. So I left after eight years because I, I just felt the need to be in a, a more controlled, say, luxurious environment. I, I just, I love luxury and I, I wanted to tap into that. So I got really fortunate again. I, I got in with Chanel uh, launching Allure, the fragrance uh, with Herb Ritz doing the shoot. This is, you know, when they had an in-house uh, campaign. Uh, but they, I, they did gigs like that that were impressive, but they were very short-lived. Um, and I was about to take a job with Donna Karen's VP of Marketing when a recruiter called and said, you've got to meet this guy, Scott Kay. Now, I don't know if your audience or yourself know who Scott Kay was. And fortunately, I have to use the word was because he's since passed. He was a mastermind marketer. He nearly solely planted platinum back into America. We worked like hand in hand with Platinum Guild International, later World Gold Council, but at the time he only did platinum. 
And he was, at, at the time, the world's most uh, re respected and sold engagement ring designer brand. I mean, you name the store, we were in it. Every independent that was worth their salt. And then we moved into Jared, Hellsberg, Diamonds. We went into there from fashion. And we competed with David Yerman and Saks Fifth Avenue and numerous places. I started as a $15 million company. I was there for 10 years. I, I left. It was, um, well, it was extraordinarily higher than, than that, let's say. Um, and I left because uh, I'm not sure if, if, if anybody in the audience or yourselves have ever worked for a designer. I find that the more brilliant a designer is, a more, the more creative a designer is, the crazier the designer is, mm -hmm. right? So I, I can put up with a lot of pendulum swings, but boy, there were just, I mean, I, listen, I, I, Scott was my mentor. He was my friend. He was my boss. I, it, it really pained me um, to leave, but I did leave to go to a company called World Trade Jewelers, which did nothing but licensing. I really didn't know licensing up until that point. Unfortunately, everything was licensed, including the NBA, the NFL, uh, jewelry. Uh, Hasbro had Scrabble jewelry we created for them. But the big one, the big success was Hershey Kiss, silhouette of a Hershey Kiss diamond uh, pendant that was a red box that made it. But it was a different audience. It was a really, it was like, it was like living in the penthouse and then suddenly being catapulted to the basement. Right. When you're dealing with buyers at Kohl's and Macy's, it's just a different vernacular than those at a Saks Neiman's or a Bloomingdale's. It just is. Right. And and I missed that. I missed the I don't know what it just had that edge. So I couldn't stay at World Trade. And to bring this story full circle, wouldn't you know that when the Scott Care organization hired Many Yerman people, David Minster is president, I could name Susan Chandler's vice president of merchandising. He brought a lot of heavy hitters onto the team and left one spot open for me to come back as CMO with the caveat that he wanted to be on QVC. So made some phone calls. Next thing you know, he's got the, the Super Bowl special, which for QVC was like massive prime time. They built him a set, they paid for packaging, they never did anything like that. And then he died. He suddenly, unexpectedly had a heart attack. And that upset a lot of people's careers. Um, and it was to about 10 years ago in December that that occurred. Anyhow, um, I decided that it was not a good time to look for work in December. And I kind of remembered how I liked the Chanel, you know, Gucci days of, you know, popping kind of in and out of, just want to give this agency thing a try. And, you know, by the mercy of God, I mean, uh, it, it, it worked. Um, and it, it continues to work. Um, we still work with, with high-end clients, uh, but they're in very short bursts. Harry Winston, for example, Gucci, I mentioned. But we also work with one-of-a-kind artists like Preveche, or names you may not know, uh, but Tess Shalom, people that do bespoke, you know, like 20 karat exclusive bowl, things like that. So sorry for the long-winded answer, but I felt like I had to kind of shape that. <laughs> <laughs> and how it sounds, it sounds like you have a pretty rich, uh, rich experience. 
and also like um, ext- extensive exposure in the space. But I know it's still you, despite of like what surrounds you, it's still you who put the um, motions uh, into action, right? So my question is, what's like the, the greatest struggle that you experience in a space that, that sure. actually needs overcoming if you want to thrive in the space? Uh, absolutely. Uh, the biggest challenge, there's, there's, there's a lot. Um, I mean, I'm in the New York, New York metro area. So as you could imagine, you know, having the word agency attached to you in any form immediately brings up, you know, a slew of competition and extra challenges. Um, I think the, the, uh, the, the main challenge, I'd say, I'd say the biggest challenge is explaining, sometimes I don't need to explain it, but usually I do, what's called SWOT analysis, S-W-O-T. It's an acronym, of course. It stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, right? And it's so critical. If It doesn't really matter whether you're a big brand, a baby brand, you know, a starting brand. It's irrelevant, really. If, if an agency is coming in to help elevate the brand presence, um, but maybe more uh, narrow cast to a certain psychographic, you know, or, or whatever the, the goal might be, short and or long term. Without that SWOT analysis, the agency is just going on their own experiences, you know, mm-hmm. some quick Google searches. I mean, it's not the way to really go about it, right? Mm-hmm. Speed SWAT, which I've coined the term now because it usually takes about 90 days to do and Sometimes the, the contracts are only 90 days. So the challenge is to get across the importance of SWAT and, and all of the miraculous things that are found. Some are a negative, which can be converted to positive. You know, you find your challenge and you meet it, or at least you try to meet it. Um, but it also gives you just so much opportunity, open doors, partnerships, things that you just wouldn't see. I mean, I'll give you one quick example. Now, this one we were not involved in, and, and it, it may not even come to fruition ever, but I think it's very interesting. Of all the timepiece companies, and, and I can't put them in a luxury category, but they're in a high ticket category, uh, Breitling. They're, I mean, Tagware does this too, but Breitling announced that as of next year, they're divorced from natural diamonds. They're only working with lab grown. And Tag Heuer is doing a lot of watches with Labron. They're about the only two watches, though, which gives me room for pause. I just did a story on this probably for Labron magazine. It's coming out in, in July that it, it maybe would interest people. Because they're, they're, uh, the thing I'm about to say about the associations is, is, is interesting. Again, I didn't come up with this, but it's the kind of thing we might offer. Bentley Motors is a long-standing partner with Brightline. They are really tight. So when they were looking at the 2024 models of Bentleys, they were considering taking Breitling's, quote unquote, they don't produce their own lab, but they're but Breitling's lab-grown diamonds and stud them in the automobile dash of select automobiles. Uh, again, to you know, kind of unite that. Sort of like what Gucci did with the Fiat and the Gucci car. You know, unbelievable associations that ordinarily might sound ludicrous and completely unproductive on paper. But when you start to do the analysis of not just the demographic, 
But the psychographic, right, the why people buy, the what they're really interested in, all of a sudden, partnerships are coming out of the woodwork. And, and those partnerships can offer major co-op dollars, incredible expansive reach, and get into technology, which I know you guys are really big on. Yeah, I agree. With, I totally agree with that one. And diving in further into um, this um, latest trend in development, talking about that, how do you keep up with that, especially with this one that we just um, you just brought up, the, like lab grown lab grown diamonds, yes. and also with with the generative AI around like chat GPT. So how do you position yourself with these changes? Right in the middle. Uh, I, I have a very staunch position of equilibrium um, and, and allow me to explain why. Um, of course, I'm in love with natural diamonds. I'm in love with the heritage, the romance, uh, the campaign that, that AWR started once in, in the day, a diamond is forever, possibly the largest and most successful ad campaign debatably ever to ever appear for any product or service. Um, it's since been transferred to forever mark and then put on hold, but regardless, very interesting question because you know the entire jewelry industry, everyone in the jewelry industry, from costume all the way to bespoke, and now the watch industry, worldwide for decades and decades and decades have spent so much time and resources and money in one stone, the diamond. Yes, there are pearls and rubies and emeralds and they're glorious stones, but in terms of the iconic stone that is everyone to everyone, right? It's the diamond. Well, it's not like this happened you know, yesterday. I mean, it, we had years and years to develop for this, but the diamond has met its clone, a scientifically perfect, optically perfect, type 2A, one of the rarest natural diamonds in the world that gets produced in a matter of weeks now, right? And sells for below half, depending on where you're going and you know who's branding it. But the, there, there lies some challenges for both natural and for lab in the technology side. For example, um, if you get a cut of a filet mignon, let's say at some restaurant, They'll tell you, if, if they're a decent restaurant, where that beef came from, right? It's, they've got it down pat. Now, let's say, yes, Dan, but that's a cow compared to, you know, uh, maybe a two-carat diamond. Okay, uh, coffee beans, all right? That's more, a little more in line. Any solid coffee manufacturer, and I mean, right down to Starbucks, can tell you where those beans are sourced, precisely. Yet... We cannot to this day determine what country of origin, in many cases, let alone what mine and what part of the country, we can trace many other things through blockchain and identify them. But if in the natural diamond space, that's a big, uh-oh, right? Now you could say, well, will lab-grown diamonds have it at May? Well, not necessarily. Many, many lab-grown diamonds come from China which unfortunately are still using coal to produce their diamonds. Therefore, their carbon footprint is quite big. And, you know, they're one of the top polluters uh, of the world um, where there are a handful of lab-grown diamond companies that are doing things so scientific. They're literally, get this, I'm going to blow your mind. There's only about five, five of them that are doing this, but still it's doable. 
they are extracting the carbon from clouds, right? Using water, solar, and, and wind power to rev up their CBD plasma machines. And therefore, every carrot they produce is producing cleaner air. Now, they claim that they can, they can show you right down to, you know, a uh, laser etching that is invisible, you know, unless you're looking under a microscope, of, uh, of, of where that diamond was sourced. But remember that initially, initially, every single lab-grown diamond needed a seed, a wafer-thin natural diamond. So you see, this is why I'm in the middle. I, I don't lean towards lab-grown and, and any alleged uh, ecological claims, a green, better green. All of that is yet to really be proven. You know, the amount of energy to power up a, uh, a plasma machine or high temperature, high pressure, uh, two ways to make it, is debatable. But so too is natural diamonds. I mean, you could have an open pit mine. You could have, uh, you could be mining uh, under the sea like the beers have been doing. You could be mining in Canada where it's really cold and you need a lot more energy. To, there's so many nuances, right? But what's not happening, unfortunately, and this, and I don't want to sound doomsday here, but I got to give it to you. And I'd love to get both of your thoughts on this. If you agree, and if the audience agrees, that the jewelry industry as a whole has spent all this time and money and effort into one stone, the diamond, and now it's met its clone, these are facts, then the question is, where the hell is the unity? Why is there this tug of war? And one could say easily, well, of course, it's competition. Natural diamond sees it as a threat. But properly managed, and if everything was regulated properly, as diamonds are, anything in it that's really worth anything is, right? Transportation is regulated. Our foods are regulated. Our drugs are regulated. But for some reason, this one kind of slipped under the radar. It's like, oh, okay, all of a sudden, we got diamonds aplenty. And here's the question for both of you. What happens when you have something that's rare or scarce, that's high-priced, that's deemed valuable, but all of a sudden, everywhere you look, there's buckets of them? Now, <clears throat> does that mean that people will fall less in love with diamonds because they're plentiful? People tend to like things that are unique, right? So the dilemma that we're in right this minute that literally could, I'll just say it, could topple the jewelry and watch industry like Blockbuster was toppled overnight. A multi-billion dollar company that no one ever thought would really go away, went away. Bookstores like, you know, name a bookstore, any famous bookstore, you know, and, and let's see how they're doing today. Amazon, you know, Stole their lunch. The point is that I'm astounded at the lack of unity and, and the lack of, of using the right technology to help bring both natural and lab-grown together because that powerhouse together would literally be, the to me, the biggest, most amazing force. But I'd like to hear your side of it. What do you think about the fact that we're maybe, dare I say, over dying? Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, I think it's definitely a valid concern. And I think uh, the threat, especially from 
you know, retailers or certain brands who may not be self-aware enough or in the know to, to even begin to fathom how they would need to prepare for not only just the, the, the AI um, side for marketing efficiency, business operations, and even design. But what you're talking about is basically the fabric and the foundation of the entire industry kind of wobbling. And, and, and I think the best way that I would say the answer to your question is why isn't there unity is because of timing. I think that, um, you know, I have my own brick and mortar stores, you know, that I've run and, um, and the adoption rate seems to be reasonable as in like people who are selling diamonds are also, you know, incorporating lab drone diamonds. Um, so I, I don't know the exact number of that, but I, I just think it's a matter of time. And then also pair that with, um, a volatile economy, mm volatile media that can sway consumer behavior, consumer spending, things of that nature. Um, you know, which I don't know what you're seeing on your side. I'm sure you're seeing it on your side, but, um, you know, sales overall in the industry, I think have taken a pinch, um, recently disposable income is, is kind of leveled out and, you know, the fears back up and things like that. But, um, you know, those are kind of my thoughts on that. And in regards to the value of the diamond, I mean, what's holding that value is that your lab grown diamond isn't worth the same when you walk out the door and, you know, maybe that'll change in the future. I'm not sure, but I have a question back to you. What do you mean by the unity? Are you talking about from a, you know, a composition of the diamond or the, Biz, the the industry acknowledging this and and not being so competitive with each other. Thank you, thank you for for the um uh, for the question on on, on clarity. It's, it's an excellent excellent point. Yes, with unity, I, I'm speaking about peer to peer integration, uh, the total supply chain. Um, working together with information and technology, uh, case in point, uh, Plot and Guild International, wonderful group, global group, there's one group, right? They handle platinum. And if palladium happens to slip into the conversation, it's mine with platinum, they can talk about that too. They can give educational programs, they can give co-op dollars. Then of course, there's the World Gold Council. There's one World Gold Council, right? For the, so it manages, Everything from 10 carat to 20 carat gold items. However, in the diamond world, you could lose count of the number of natural diamond companies or groups or nonprofits that there are. There's certainly the Natural Diamond Council. There, there's, I mean, you go all the way up, you know, to even or down to you know the Diamond Club of New York, all the way up to you know the Federation of Diamond. There's there, there's a global Unbelievable. How many nonprofits are there for lab? There's one, and it's just starting to kind of get its feet. It doesn't, it's not properly funded, I'll just say it. And and I think retailers are confused. I mean, they're still confused about what they can say, what they can't say in terms of FTC uh, guidelines, green lines. Um, 
And so where's the abudsman, right? Where's that centralized focus that's like, hey, let's all sit down and talk about this, you know? JCK just did something brilliant. This year, Rob Bates hosted two separate diamond days. One, what was on only natural. So the audience members were exclusively miners, mine diamonds, right? Day two was exclusively lab, right? Now, I understand the separation of the two for many reasons, but I also, it upsets me because it, 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 it underlines the divide. If mm. we are in agreement that GIA is grading a as grown type 2A diamond and, and, and putting out that verification, if you will, and then the very next stone they have is, is very similar cut in clarity and, and carrot weight. And, and it's like, then what, what are we, what is the difference then, right? It's a very unusual situation because the industry has never had a clone. You're right. Ever, right? We've had we've people nothing, that tried, but Moise nothing, nothing people would buy, you know, mm. and actually take seriously. You know, you had CZs, and I mean, who wants to bring one of those home? Right, right. And White Spinel, uh, you know, White Sapphire, Moissanite, the list goes on, but not diamonds. And the issue here is very intriguing because every single lab-grown diamond that's ever been produced is always a type 2A, number one. Or unless you would add, you know, a little boron to it for blue or something, then you make it a type 2B. But the, the point is that they're exceptionally bright. They, they shine in the end case like nobody's business. They're bigger for less money. So, of course, you got that to contend with. And I believe now, taking the natural diamonds uh, position and stance, that they're kind of robbing a bit of the legacy and history and and romance. Of- I was, yeah, I was going to say that when you were talking about what people are thinking and what they can and can't do. Think about the genealogy and the generational, um, you know, the traditions that are ingrained in people subconscious about the way they they do things and they're so traditional and this and that. But, you know, I think there's a reason you're on this and I'm on this because we're kind of forward thinking um, early adopters. And, you know, we're not sitting on our hands while it's right in front of the screen saying warning, warning, warning. Yes. And I typically only work with people like that. I do not spend a lot of time um, convincing people of the the benefits of keeping up and, and being ahead of times. And, and so I, I definitely respect and appreciate that. Um, but it, yeah, again, I think it's just, it's a matter of time, man, before those conversations start happening and the risk and benefit mm. pair that with timing, you know, and, and, and keep in mind also, you mentioned some really big names and some really big people that are in the, the natural diamond space they have control and they're not, they're not going to start releasing those and having those conversations in my personal opinion, you know, until there's a benefit or they're prepared for it. So, or, 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 or until they're, they're looking to match, let's say, let's go all the way to graph. And they're, they're trying to match a, a, uh, a pearl drop three carat type two a, uh, or I should say type two, a, a canary, a fancy diamond, but it's an earring. So they really have to match it. That's going to be make it even harder. Make it pink. I mean, you know, with the Argyle mine closed in 2020, now pink 
uh, diamonds, natural diamonds are extraordinarily rare. Where, what are they going to do? Are they going to call a company like Chatham to reproduce it, which might have happened in the future? I don't know. I've just heard a little something. But the point is that it, 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 at some point in time, the two have got to, either they've got to find a way to work together, or as the saying goes, you know, united they stand, united they fall, or divided they fall. No one wants that. Um, anyhow, maybe that's a separate. Uh, I'd love to take the conversation on further <laughs> on just that because I know there's the other technology. I mean, people, but we're gonna do that actually. So yeah, also, and yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. Oh, I'm sorry, Anthony. Is there um, question? No, wanna... no. Just really appreciate you know the conversation here. Uh, <laughs> okay, definitely agree with that one. Definitely touch and you know and uh, yeah, I'll, and I'll the. Totally agree with that. And the issue that Dan provided, it's 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 totally intriguing. Totally agree with that one and fascinating. So um Dan, like this will be our last question. We just want to know um what advice can you give to the people who's in the same um space and industry uh, regarding with this um trend that we have right now? So we're just curious, what's what's your opinion about it? What's the best advice or how to push a position um in, in the space? Sure. With this um, thing going going on, a absolutely, and and, and I'll, I'll pepper it with technology because that's really the, the the this is the whole thing is wrapped and and it's not just a bow on the box. It, this is technology to me in its finest form. Um, I I, I did this with Paula Crevice, one of the one of the kind of artists that I spoke of. I mean, her stuff is in museums and you know easily could start at like thirty five thousand and up. Anyhow, uh, uh, at the last show. Uh, it, there was, and, and the show, I mean, there's still people that are a bit timid about traveling abroad, or maybe they just, either they can't travel or they, they don't want to travel, or maybe we're not even talking trade show. Maybe it's just, it, let's say it's even consumer that, that, that can't make it to their showroom in wherever, right? Uh, virtual consultations, I think, are so easy to put together. I mean, talking on the phone is like talking, you know, on Zoom, really. I mean, they're almost interchangeable, especially for you guys. But my point is, uh, we, we launched something called Virtual Crevice. Um, and you can type Virtual Crevice uh, into um, uh, YouTube and you'll find a, a promo that we did for, as an example. Um, it gave people the, the idea of a, sort of like a reserve a table. I mean, same calendar or the same kind of program. You go in, you pick an available date and time that obviously has been pre-approved by the, you know, the client. And you set that up. It's, it's all, it's either Zoom or Skype based. And it does all the niceties of, you know, reminding you via SMS text and, and, uh, and email and, and that sort of thing. But it does something else. It allows you to record the conversation, right? So you can see when, when whatever it is that she's holding up, up close to you, show it to others, share it, and, and just kind of refresh your memory on things. It's such a valuable medium. What you're doing right now, what, with this whole concept, this whole podcast, is so brilliant because of all these things. And I love the very first thing was said was, are we, are we recording? And then the next question was, to the cloud? I'm like, these guys are just, they're, they're in the right seat at the right time. And while other people are doing Zoom meetings and Skypes, I think that they're kind of doing them as 
one off. So, okay, that's going to flip the page. That got that off the calendar, right? But if they're really meaningful, if the content is really important, beyond being entertaining, hopefully, and interesting, but if it's genuinely important, you want to document it, right? And you want to be able to go back to it. And so I applaud both of you for having not only the insight and the ability to do this, but the fortitude to move forward on it. I mean, you could have pushed me easily into like an all technology corner and I you know, would have kind of punched my way out of it, but, but, the, but you didn't. And, and, and I'm, I'm grateful for that, truly. Um, and I hope that one day we get to speak again and, and congratulations yeah. to your success thus far. And I, uh, I um, hope to be... It's our honor. It's our honor then. And we thank you so much. What you provided to us is like a, a liquid gold and the entertainment that you provided to us. So it's, it's pretty amazing. So if anybody wants to connect with you, reach out to you, want to partner with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. Uh, through uh, luxlicensing.com, which is L-U-X-E-L-I-C-E-N-S-I-N-G.com. Um, you know, through there, they can email me, they could, uh, you know, SMS me, whatnot, they can see our portfolio. That's kind of a good hub, I'd say. Amazing, amazing. And uh, guys, if you made it this far, uh, thank you so much for sticking with us, for, a lesson, uh, for our listeners. If you got any value from today's episode, we would love to like get a rating or a review on where you get the podcast. And if there is someone um, in the midst of like growing their business in this space or thinking about like starting a business, you can grab this episode and send this one to them and also take one thing for yourself. Take one thing that you've learned, go ahead and implement and execute it. We want to know about your, and share it to us. We want to learn more about your, uh, know about your wins. And above all, thank you so much for being with us. Um, we really appreciate your time in, the fall, um, in, in this call, Dan, providing us those um, super insightful ideas. 100%. And, and, and 100%, 100%. Everybody, um, see you in the next episode. Cheers.